0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Welcome to Tuesday Hometime with Joan Bartlett for the next two hours. One month until Radiothon. So just an early reminder for the need for all of us to pull together to keep Radical Radio 3CR on air. Plenty of reminders coming up along the time draws nearer. But today, Natalie Lowry from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign talks about a conference of political organisations in Tokyo, the Civil 7, and her visit to devastated Fukushima, and the added concern of dumping radioactive waste in the Pacific, May Day in the Philippines with activist Peter Murphy, and former diplomat Tony Kevin with his views on Russia Today and the war in Ukraine. But let's start, of course, with Mr Kevin Healy and find out what sort of a week he's had.
2: A week, Jan, listener, when the newly financially liberated destitute, now former destitute, were celebrating their almost $3 a day windfall, well, $2.85, discussing the spending spree they can now have, the luxury items that $2.85 will allow them, whooping it up and dancing in their favourite gutters, inviting each other to visit their favourite gutter to party deep into the night, deep into the budget night. Albo promised no one would be left behind they laughed happily and he has delivered but that's because he understands don't know if you know because he doesn't make a point of it but he was raised by a single mother in public housing public housing? one young former destitute reveling in his newfound wealth looked puzzled Uh, yes, yes, it was housing the government used to provide for people like us well, for all sorts of people so what happened to it? Oh, they sold it off to developers and made it private housing and gave some to those groups who come around and tell us how much they care for us. Why would they do that? Well, obviously, so the developers and the private goody-goody groups can help us. Although I feel sorry for Elbo, because if he was a kid today, he and his mum would be living in their car if they had one, or here with us if they didn't. Oh dear, poor Albo. Yes, but good news for us. They plan to spend lots of money on affordable housing and the $2.85 should go a long way to helping us there. I'll just check my pockets. Although, can you get an affordable house for 75 cents? And don't forget, another party goer shouted, Albo and Jim Chalmers' capital tell us time and again they know we are doing it tough. That would explain why they have been so generous. And another newly financially liberated reminded them, don't forget the government has to find 38 million a day for 30 years, and some say it could end up as high as 57 million a day for the nuclear submarines that will ensure our security in these gutters and trillions more on train killing to protect us, which makes their generosity even more big-hearted. And so they celebrated long into the night, and indeed, Last Heard was still celebrating, still partying, still enjoying the high life in their favourite gutters, showing how Elbo and Jim really do understand that people are doing it tough and the extraordinary lengths they will go to look after them. By the way, Jim, we asked Jim, what is affordable housing? It's housing people can afford, or more correctly, sold or rented at 80% of market value. Uh, as determined by whom? Well, those who understand the market, the developers, the real estate industry, the the Property Profits Council. We found a homeless bloke who had 75 cents in his kick and he was wondering, (laughs) you've got to be joking, and you've given millions to the big developers who are making a killing out of the build-to-rent market which caters for the top end of the rental market. How will that help those doing it tough? This is a carefully calibrated policy to help the people a socialist government cares about. What, developers, real estate, property industry? No, of course not. Those doing it tough, carefully calibrated, remarkably clever really, for if we can provide this benefit for the top end of the market, it will free up the bottom end of the market for those we care about. Uh, But how will that make housing affordable for those doing it tough? By uh, by, um, uh, by by well obviously because it's a remarkably clever, carefully calibrated, thoroughly thought-through policy, and it has the full support of developers, the real estate industry, and the Property Profits Council. Uh, thanks, Jim. Pleasure. Despite going to extraordinary lengths to help those doing it tough, Jim and the team showed much less consideration for those making a patriotic effort to make life better for all of us. The budget made life tough for the poor great resource behemoths, ripping more tax off them for no better reason than the great patriotic behemoths are making trillions in super-duper, over-the-top obscene profits from true blue Aussie resources, making it surprising that the mining giants uttered not a word of objection to this new crippling impost, reducing their profits to no more than super-duper over-the-top obscene. Okay, okay, sure, there were two proposals put forward by the Treasury, which would have raised trillions more than the trickle the government will receive. But sensibly, the government sat down and negotiated with the mining giants who put forward their own proposal on how much tax they should pay and obviously it is a very good proposal because that's the one the government adopted. With a few sensible conditions like new mining ventures have a seven-year moratorium before, before paying the tax, that, that makes sense because it gives them seven years before they have to spend money on their tax lawyers on how to avoid it sorry, how to meet their legal tax obligations. It's grossly unfair how people accuse the caring business class of avoiding tax, of tax evasion, when none of them do. They just find ways of not paying it so they meet their legal tax obligations. Or as a former filthiest rich of the filthy rich, Lord Kerry of Waterhouse put it, anyone who pays their taxes is bloody mad. And Lord Kerry never, never broke the law in not paying his taxes. Oh, and the mining giants can also make all sorts of claims to reduce the extra tax, so it's a puzzlement as to why we haven't heard a word of a complaint from the poor dears. Complaints, though, from the caring business class party about this spectacular generosity to the most destitute of the destitute. Their windfall will increase inflation and hurt not only the most destitute, but all true blue Aussies. This irresponsible spending will destroy the world as we know it. It threatens the very foundations of uh, true blue Aussie society, the very fabric. It ignores middle true blue Aussie. Not so big economic guru Angus tailings predicted Armageddon. Uh, giving the most destitute of an extra $2.85 a day will destroy the economy? Absolutely. We demand that these doll bludgers get a job, contribute to the profits of their caring employer, which makes us all better off. This is by far the worst decision since the people voted for the socialists. That bad, Angus. That bad. The caring business class lot have found this week's path to the government benches middle true blue Aussie. Every interview with any of them stresses the budget ignores middle true blue Aussie, middle true blue Aussie, middle true blue Aussie. So if you're tall or short, bad luck. You're going to miss out. Speaking of the caring business class lot, talk about intellectual jealousy, listener. Canberra University uh, professor Chris Wallace, article in the Saturday paper under the headline, sit down if you're not sitting down, you, you won't believe this, under the headline, maybe Peter Duffer's just not that smart. <laughs> Can't envy me cruel. I, I can feel our collective shock like an earthquake. How could anyone question Constable Duffer's intellect? Like you know. Why, he passed, well we presume he passed, the Queensland police entry tests. one of the great academic challenges. Why, Pete's such a deep thinker, he said we must reduce emissions and must increase our supply of and reliance on gas and fossils and must have nuclear energy. So how could anyone question such intelligence? Shame, Chris Wallace, shame. At the big event that had us glued to our tellies last week, the heir with no hair made a speech to honour his father, our head of state, in which he eulogised, We're all so proud of you! And I thought, what is there to be proud of? Because the only contribution his father made to becoming the king was getting born. Once he survived childbirth, it was a walk-up start oh well maybe the hairless one was proud he had survived the childbirth which we're the same to be proud of when he becomes our head of state and elbow big supremo anthony all being Uzi, said he swore allegiance to our head of state in his most gracious majesty's home country his heirs and successors like the proud son because that's what the troubler was people would want me to do well, listen, now he didn't ask us. Maybe we're just not true, true blue Aussie people. Unlike those vigilantes up in Queensland, Her Most Gracious Majesty's land, out to set young Terranullius kids straight, prompting states of the state supremo to plead, Don't take the law into your own hands. The police are employed to do that. And they sure do. Constable Duffer could attest to that. On matters legal, one of the great corporate citizens, Boral, was dragged before the court over exposing workers to silicon dust for years, not enforcing masks or protection when it knew the dangers, facing maximum fines of one and a half million but walking away with a fine of a hundred and something thousand because the bed said it had submitted an early guilty plea and was sorry. Of course, they're all sorry when they get sprung. Not as sorry as the exposed workers who face a painful death. Their collective life's worth a hundred and something grand. Uh, tell my PA to take it out of the petty cash tin, will you? Oh, but Borrell also apologised to its workers. That'll console them as they struggle to breathe. Also in court, former US of the UN, of the US of the world, big Supremo Donald Trump or the poor done for sexual assault and defamation describing the decision the biggest witch hunt the world has ever seen, ever, ever a disgrace, assuring us he had no idea who the woman is, a nutcase careful donald or the defamation compensation might blow out and look it's quite possible he does have no idea who she is because he didn't need to look at her face or consider she might have a name and the number one u.s of train killer general james mcconk Millens, came here to tell us to spend more than our record spending on train killing The purpose of my visit is to come and talk about issues of mutual concern and how we can work better together and how we can continue to build the strength of our alliance. Uh, How can we achieve that, James? By you spending lots and lots more on our merchants of death and good, good Zion is showing how effective that peaceful merchandise is as it gives it to non-land, non-people terrorists who can't accept that Zion took their country. That 38 million nuclear sub-deal is just a drop in the ocean, in the U.S. of ocean, which in the interests of war is peace is every ocean. But finally, what hopes satire when he then talked of peace through strength? George Orwell can't compete. Good afternoon.
0: The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe.
3: The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy,
0: community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library,
3: so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter.
4: The Setting Sun Film Festival, the film festival of the West, is 10 this year. Come and celebrate at the opening night at the Sun Theatre in Yarraville on Thursday 11th of May or catch a film, event or activity right through till Friday 26th of May. All Setting Sun Film Festival details and tickets are available online at settingsun.com.au. The Setting Sun Film Festival is a proud 3CR supporter. Who's that from? A quick look won't hurt. What
5: time are you picking up, Kate? Ah, oh, damn it. Saw so you on your phone. License, please?
1: Pick up your phone while you're driving, and it's a $555 fine and four demerit points. Distracted drivers can be caught anywhere, anytime. A message from the TAC. Drive safely for everyone. A 3CR supporter.
2: In Rasa Vin Manasile, Issei Nyani Ilearaja Vin Issei Kondatam.
3: Celebrating the wondrous music of Mastro Ilearaja on 3CR every Friday, 8 to 9 pm. Static 26th of May.
1: On Friday the 14th of April, representatives of key Pacific Civil Society organisations spoke at the Civil 7 Summit in Tokyo, Japan. Natalie Lowry from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign was there and
5: I asked her first, what was Civic 7? Myself, under the Deep Sea Mining Campaign, with our partner in Japan, uh, Pacific Asia Research Centre, Park. We sort of worked together to bring over some of our partners from uh, the Pacific. So there was Tita from Tonga and Apali and Lysa from the Pacific Network and Globalisation um, to be able to attend and also have a session at the C7, which, as you said, is the civil society summit where a communique is pulled together to hand over to the G7. So it's really the only way civil society can kind of put into the G7. Meetings as such. So, our kind of key thing was realizing that deep sea mining wasn't really on the radar within the civil society space, particularly in Japan. And so, our partner organisation in Japan was very keen for this to be a chance to do that. That was that was a big reason we went to the C7. But we also travelled from Tokyo up to Sapporo to Hokkaido Island above uh, the main island where Tokyo is. And uh, we met there with a whole lot of activists and had another session, which was while the um, G7 Environment Minister's meeting was going on, um, where we shared... We we talked, obviously, in deep-sea mining, but we heard from uh, activists in Japan working around biomass. We heard from activists who were challenging a potential Radio X waste dump in Hokkaido, which is the waste from Fukushima, as well as some other sort of climate justice issues. So it was a really great way to hear what's happening on the ground in Japan but also share that deep sea mining is very much a Japanese issue with the Japanese government being engaged in the international space but also um, wanting to open up in their national waters.
1: Well just going back to the Civil 7 for a few more minutes, it's a divided Pacific isn't it? Some nations, not too many, are in favour. How many are against
5: so, in terms of nation states, Pacific nation states, you have uh, Samoa, Palau, Fiji, New Caledonia, Vanuatu, uh, New Zealand, if you're going to include that in there, <laughs> that have, have very much come out as a sort of alliance um, calling for a moratorium. And then there's so, some states that are sort of, I guess, in the sort of in between. And then there's clearly the states that have entered into contracts with the metals company, which are Tonga. And Nauru. But along with the states you have a very strong civil society that are completely opposed and that's the Pacific Blue Line that includes churches like the Pacific Conference of Churches and there's also the Pacific parliamentarians against deep-sea mining which is something like 25 parliamentarians around the Pacific. So there is quite a strong a movement against the industry going ahead but of course it's challenging because Nauru and Tonga have taken on these licenses in the international waters with the metals company and the Cook Islands is particularly, the government is particularly pro, not so much civil society, but the government is is very pro deep sea mining, although the opposition recently in Cook Islands came out with some major concerns.
1: Well, where does that leave
5: Australia? Well, at the moment we are currently lobbying Australia um, and we believe in in civil society and this is Deep Sea Mining Campaign and Greenpeace Australia, with the support of the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, which is an international coalition that we're both members of. We deeply believe that Australia needs to have a position very soon, and it should be following in the footsteps of New Zealand. So we're in the process now of speaking across four of the ministries, which includes Penny Wong, Industry Ministry, which is King. Conroy, Pat Conroy, who you know has sort of uh, ministry in the Pacific, and also Plibersek, Minister for Environment, Tanya Plibersek. So it is across four portfolios, so we have to engage with all four portfolios. And so at the moment, we're just in discussion. So we're, we're really hoping that in the next few months that they can come out with a position of, a very, at the minimum, a pause, but you know preferably a moratorium on deep-sea mining and international waters.
1: And the conclusion to that Civil 7 meeting? which will go to the G7? Has
5: it already gone? Yeah, so the communique was created and unfortunately, so civil society, things don't always go perfectly. They deleted the paragraph on deep sea mining and because they did this, Tita from Tonga was very upset. So she had an intervention, a very powerful intervention that went on Twitter in the space saying it was incredibly disappointing. We're not only fighting climate issues and we're frontline to that, we not only have been tested on by nuclear, you know, the nuclear industry, we now got this whole new industry wanting to open up in our oceans, and you didn't even commit to leaving that paragraph in the communique to go to the G7. So that was kind of an unfortunate situation, but because of our intervention and because of our session that we had on deep sea mining, which included me talking about kind of giving a 101, what is it, to talking from a very strong climate perspective, of why this is not needed when they're already dealing with the climate and it's, you know, it's not going to help us solve the climate issue by opening up our deep seas. And Lisa finishing up as a youth from Fiji, just talking about the movement that was happening, including the, the building moratoriums across the Pacific. So from that, there is now the G7 youth who've come out with a very strong statement. So it has had a ripple effect. And actually the G7 ministers, the environment ministers, there was they did talk about deep-sea mining and the concerns of not having enough science. It certainly wasn't as strong as we'd want it to be, but it's still in there and they're communicated. so that's very important. Um, so there's still a chance to kind of build it within the main G7 meeting, so we hope that does happen.
1: And who made the
5: decisions to delete deep-sea mining? So there's organisers within the C7, and uh, we're not really sure why that happened, like... We're obviously, you know, they've sort of been taken to task now. I don't think they'll be doing that again. I think it was more around poor process than anything else, unfortunately. Which just shows, you know, like when you have big groups of people together, it's not always perfect. We just have to keep trying. And then if things don't maybe go right, then we have to make sure we intervene in our own spaces to clarify why that's really important. And that's, that's something we were able to do. Um, but, you know, as a result, we did connect with other NGOs in Japan, including Amnesty Greenpeace, the Peace Boat and Friends of the Earth and they're all very keen within Japan to take this issue on. So I think, you know, regardless of that, we still got some really good results on being able to move the issue within Japan.
1: Also, do you include scientists in your discussions?
5: Uh, In the movement, yes. There is a huge amount of scientists. In fact, there's 700 plus scientists that have signed a letter or calling for a moratorium, and that's an online sort of website portal um, where they continually grow. We have some very strong scientific allies like Diva Ramon, who's a very renowned uh, deep-sea scientist from Trinidad and Tobago, um, and she's come out very active on this issue, and there's there's many more. So, yeah, I think because we haven't had the science there and because the industry is getting to this point where it could really open up, there's been a lot more papers been coming out in the last two years, really looking at what the probable impacts would be, from noise to like light pollution, to will it is it it's a massive carbon sink, you know what is the impacts of that, to the real impacts of the plumes that would be created, the waste that would be created from any mine that started operating, um, and many other things actually. So there is there is a sort of strong growth of really good scientific papers coming out. Um, what we're needing to do is we have an industry that is, is, has a very clear, clever PR machine so we've really got to expose the flaws in their arguments um, which you know we, we continue to do but we need to go even harder on that particularly this year um, as the next ISA comes up in July the International Seabed Authority meeting.
1: Were the opposition people in PNG involved in any of these meetings? Because they've had the the previous, the Alliance of Sawara Warriors and trying to, or they did stop the attempt to have mining off in the Bismarck Sea. Were they there?
5: They didn't come to the G7 uh, because Jonathan Messalem, who is the coordinator of the Alliance of Sawara Warriors, had recently just come back from Jamaica at at the International Seabed Authority meeting. So it was just a matter of, you know, a capacity and energy because the journey for him from Jamaica was four days. So he got back and we pretty much left about a week later. So, um, he was there though at the International Secret Authority meeting and he was able to make an in- intervention inside the council meeting along with a couple of other Pacific uh, representatives. So that was very powerful. You know, we're very careful in terms of our Pacific partners and not overstretching them because the work they do on the ground is so huge. So we sort of like try to share these international spaces and Tita from Tonga had not had a chance to to travel this year so we we talked with her and it was really great to get Apali and Lysa from Fiji because they were younger activists, younger campaigners and we feel it is just as important to have the youth in those spaces. Lysa only 25 so to have her speak at the C7 and the other events we had was really great. and she got interviewed actually for a magazine there, like a environmental magazine. So, yeah, it was, it was fantastic to be able to get all our Pacific partners' voices out into international fora as much as we can. Talk about the deadline. I
1: suppose it is a deadline in July this year.
5: Yes, two years ago, this rule was triggered, the two-year rule, which means that the International Seabed Authority, after that rule has been triggered, can hand out exploitation licenses. So currently there is no operating deep sea mine in the world, um, and the only exploitation license that does exist, so a license to operate, is in the Bismarck Sea, the Sawara One project, which the Alliance of Sawaras have held off for a very long time, but they still have to fight to hold it off. But now in international waters, in the Carrington clippin Zone, which is an area of exploration licenses about half the size of the United States, so it's a massive area, there is an opportunity now for the for the International Seabed Authority to give a licence to operate to the metals company. The idea is that could be triggered in July, but our assessment, it won't be triggered in July. And July is another very strong, uh, very important point for civil society that attend and also the governments that are calling for a moratorium to really push for a moratorium within the ISA. And then I think it would be the November, the meeting in November at the end of the year where, we, where it really could be possible for it to be triggered. And so this year is a massive year for us to stop deep sea mining. It's a very big year to get Australia on board. It's really important Australia is on board. They're important in the International Seabed Authority, and they really need to have a stronger position on this industry, you know, and we're really corning for them to do that. So it's a bit of a work on the ground here in Australia for us. And then, you know, there'll be a a growing civil society that now attend the International Seabed Authority, including Greenpeace International bringing in Pacific partners, which I think is very important and very crucial to have their voices in this space.
1: Talk a bit more about the International Seabed Authority and the the politics around that organisation.
5: Sure. So the International Seabed Authority was set up as part of the UN Law of the Sea the UNCLOS and it has around 169 states represented in the ISA so it is like a UN body but it's kind of its own turf in a way and it's based in Jamaica for so the head offices in Jamaica the head of the International Seabed Authority is or the general secretary is Michael Lodge and so the concern for many of us is that Michael Lodge is in bed with the corporate players. So there's a bit of a corporate capture of the ISA. This was exposed actually in a New York Times article by a journalist called Eric Clipton in March. So, you know, this is not sort of conspiracy theory. There's a re- real concern of his connection to some of these mining companies that obviously want to open up our deep seas. And so for us, we believe that the ISA is not fit for purpose. It should really be overhauled. It needs a new structure because the International Seabed Authority really is responsible for over 50% of our ocean because that's the deep sea, right? Maybe even more than that. And that is the heritage of humankind. If they're going to be pushing these regulations to go ahead and they're going to be pushing for deep sea mining, and yet the most of humans around the world don't even know it exists, there's a real issue there. Uh, that's one. The other is, you know, the sort of cultural heritage sides of stuff, including obviously Pacific cultural heritage, but also other cultural heritage like lost ships and things like that. But also very important is the concern around the ecosystems. And they should be there to help protect the ecosystems as well as a body. Definitely not be desecrating it as deep sea mining will when it goes ahead. There is absolute certainty that it will. And it will be long lasting because Our deep seas, they move at a very different time, very different, very slow time. The nodules that they want to mine or harvest, but actually it is almost like strip mining, um, are sort of potato size, and they take millions and years to form. And they have certain life that live off them. So this is the big concern, is opening up this massive space. If this happens, it will be the largest extractive development the world has ever seen. So, you know, there is serious concern of the impacts that this will have on the carbon sink, which is the deep sea, but also just how far the plumes will spread and the impacts that will have over time.
1: Who are the companies who are pushing to have this mining? And is the Pacific the main area or are they attacking the oceans all around the world?
5: So the Pacific is very much the main area, but there is concerns in the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean. And so, you know, there's definitely other places of concern. And the main companies is, well, the metals company is the main company in terms of the PR machine for the industry. And they're very aggressive with that. And they're the ones who have signed these contracts with two states, Nauru and Tonga, and, uh, sorry, and Kiribati. So there's three specific states that they've signed contracts with. But there's also Odyssey Minerals, Blue Minerals, um, you've got some big companies in the background like Orsies, uh, which is a big shipping company, Demi, which is a big dredging company. You did have Lockheed Martin, but they've just sold out to company Loki, which is Norwegian, but also has ties to the military And Glencore is also the bait in the wings, and Glencore is a big mining company. So we're doing a lot of digging. A lot of our focus, we do finance advocacy, is focused on the metals company because they push so much of this narrative that deep sea mining is needed for the green transition, as well as other peculiar messaging. Um, But we're also you know, monitoring. So Maersk has recently divested, and they're a big shipping company from the metals company which is really good news, and that's partly due to work on the ground from Deep Sea Mining Campaign and WWF. Um, but we're also working with banks to make sure they put in their policies to not invest in deep sea mining. So currently there's about 10 banks that have taken up that policy and will continue to do that with banks and investors.
1: And, of course, we've got to realise that this is a, a new venture. They've got to work out the machines, how they're going to get it to the surface, what happens if there's an right. accident.
5: Mm. That's right. So, I mean, there's concern, really, that whether this is even economical in the first place. And the ISA did allow the metals company to test last year in the current and clippin zone. And as a result of that, some scientists on board leaked video footage as well as their concerns, um, which we released to to the public and to the media in January this year. Um, The metals Company have come back and said, oh, it's nothing, don't worry about it. But, you know, it's like they didn't report it. They weren't going to report it until we have, you know, had exposed it, which is a deep concern. So the thing is, this is going to take place in our international oceans, out of sight, out of mind, particularly what's going on underneath the ocean, and there's a whole point of concern. So there's a concern of plumes, At the bottom where the machines will be sort of strip mining these areas and then there's a riser pipe that goes right up to a ship up on the ocean where that's processed and then there's another wastewater lot that goes down to the mid-ocean. So there's two sets of plumes you've got to worry about as well as any other sort of spills that come off the boat and we worked for two years with an oceanographer using 88,000 images of deep sea flora and fauna and we Basically, the modelling showed that on one site, the metals company's Tommel site, which is the Tonga Metal Company site, that one operation, the modelling that was done on the plumes, using this incredible sort of oceanography sort of data set thing, showed that those plumes would get to Hawaii within three months and to the northern lined islands of Kiribati. So imagine if you had two mines or three mines or all that area mining, there is absolutely going to be a serious amount of pollution that we won't be able to control because the oceans move. So that's that's very much the concern that we have and scientists have and churches have and people across the world have.
1: So what they hope to do is develop a ginormous machine, I'd imagine, plonk it down Mm -hmm. on the seabed, attach it to a huge pipeline and that pipeline goes mm-hmm. right up to the surface what's going to happen if something right. happens to, what's going to happen if something happens to that pipeline
5: on the way well that's right there, there you go that's another whole area of uh, you know accidental possibly man-made accident where well, you're going to have a serious amount of pollution come out and then how do they i don't know how they fix that right i mean we've seen this with oil rigs it is different to gas and oil mining, but there is some technologies that will be the same. But it is going to have an impact for sure whether they have these man-made accidents, which are very possible, we're seeing this over and over again, or whether it's just the actual doing of it is going to create such a, a you know, mass plumage pollution, but also the tracks they leave in that ocean is going to take a long time for anything to regenerate down there, a very long time. That is, it's not like compacted mud, it's like the sort of sediment that's very soft. And so, you know, there's all these variables <laughs> that um, the industry can't really prove that they can really control this. And that's that's the concern. The other thing is we just don't need it. They're pushing this because there's this drive for, you know, transition minerals. And, of course, we need to transition out of fossil fuels. We all know that. we have, Climate change is real. <clears throat> but do we need to mine our deep seas? Do we need to mine our deep seas and open up new sacrifice zones? No, we don't. We don't at all. There, there is this sort of, you know, push that, oh, we need to mine more. And we will probably have to mine some metals more to transition. But we can think about how we do that and where we do that. We don't need to be opening up all these new mines and all these new sacrifice zones, particularly places that, you know, we should be leaving protected like the deep sea.
1: Ignoring the impact on the culture of the many peoples in the Pacific. Yeah. Well, that's right. So that's something
5: Elena Hill took from um, Epicurus Society in Cook Islands. She had an intervention at the International Seabed Authority, and her intervention was the first intervention that talked about Pacific cultural heritage. Because these people voyage across the Pacific. They have their own, they wouldn't call it song lines you call here, but in a sense they're like song lines, you know. Um, These are cultural areas that they have, uh, cultural stories that they have as as the best navigators in the world. And so that's not been really taken into consideration either. Um, And it must be taken into consideration. And the people, the Pacific people that are, you know, obviously advocating against this industry talk very strongly to that.
1: And of course, when you look at other areas of the Pacific, you've got the legacy of the nuclear testing. And you mentioned a moment ago that you went further up, and then there's the prospect of TEPCO letting go of the radioactive water in the Pacific.
5: That's right. Prior to our deep sea mining work in Japan, my partner organisation there took me up to Fukushima. So we drove up from Tokyo to Fukushima and I spent five days on the road with them. So we went right up to the coast, coast edge so I was able to look back at um, Fukushima Daima, which is the sister power plant. And then ten kilometres is Fukushima Daiichi, the one that is that had the meltdown. And we drove we drove about to a kilometre to the to the main power plant. And then we followed the route of where the radiation went, which is quite far. And so what really struck me in meeting the local activists and seeing what I saw, which was ghost town villages and towns, piles of radioactive made materials in these black canvas bags sitting on the sides of roads. This was 12 years later, still digging the topsoil off closer. This is more closer to Fukushima plant in certain towns there. The reality was the tsunami and the earthquake was bad, you know, it destroyed a lot of things. But community can come back and rebuild. The next day was the nuclear power plant, uh, the meltdown. Community had to leave and they can't come back. That's a whole different thing. That's a serious amount of displacement of people. And that was the thing that really got me. That was quite an emotional journey to go on that journey. I went to a town called Naomi, which is about 15 kilometers from the plant, and met with an activist there, a community activist, a mother. And she told us the story of how the mayor of her town said, okay, all those people close to Fukushima have to come up here now. So they got buses and they brought them up and they put them up in halls and they fed them. Like within that four days, they went in and saw the doctor. And then the doctor realized through a uh, radiation detector that it was off the Richter scale, the radiation in that town is Naomi. So then everyone had to evacuate. So it was so devastating, it happened so quickly, and it happened in winter as well, snowing. But also she took me into her house. And when I went into her house, it was like, mm, okay, this earthquake must have done this. And she said, no, this wasn't an earthquake. This has been dilap- dilapidated because we haven't been able to come back to a house in 12 years. So it's very sad. And that house will be removed. And now the government is trying to rebuild these sort of towns and bring people back they're rebuilding them in a way that is not what it was before and community uh, after 12 years have been displaced they've been broken up families have been displaced it's actually not going to be that easy for them to come back you know there's a lot of pain in coming back um, so that just shows you this, the impact of the nuclear power plant meltdown and obviously that's that's the human side we still don't really know like the long-term health what's going to happen to people that were exposed we then travelled through a few other towns, and we went 50 kilometres away, up kind of a bit more into the mountains to stay with an organic farmer, uh, Sajisan. Now, they have all these beautiful mountains there that they know they can't walk into and forage for mushrooms and herbs that they had once done traditionally, probably for generations. And they have been able to come back and grow, but they started... They kept planting rice and growing rice right through all those first three or four years so they could keep testing. So it's actually the farmers and the fisher folk who are doing the most extensive testing of their products than the government. (laughs) So their levels of radiation, uh, they tested a much higher, like, you know, uh, lower rate in a sense, like so it can't be over a certain amount, which TEPCO and Japan have a higher rate. So really, the fish, I trust the fisher folk open the farmers, open the Japanese government. And it's quite amazing what they're doing to try and keep their their economies going, their traditional economies going, because Fukushima was the food bowl of Japan. And in the 70s, it was seen as a sort of backward place because it wasn't industrialized, but it was the food bowl, it was agriculture. And they were like, oh well, we'll just, you know, industrialize it by putting these power plants here. Those power plants feed Tokyo. That's all they do. So it's not really supporting Fukushima. (laughs) And you know, it's, and then Hokkaido is now possibly going to be one of the waste dumps. Here's Tokyo who's really what benefited from the nuclear power plants. (laughs) Yet it's these other provinces that are um, the ones who are wearing the problem. And that's, that's a, you know, really, was really obvious to me. And also community on the ground really do not want that waste put into the ocean. Not because it will impact their people. They know it will travel and it will impact other people across the Pacific. After we traveled through, we ended up at Fukushima University and we had a session um, where we heard from the fisher folk and the farmers and from scientists who were very concerned about how they were even decommissioning Fukushima. <laughs> and that was another insight. And then at the end, I stood up and I read a solidarity message from the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance, which stood with all the communities opposing the release of the waste, but also letting them know we have a responsibility to these communities because it was the uranium from Australia that said Fukushima. So really trying to create this you know, alliance and solidarity. I also read messages from the Pacific. So unfortunately, none of our Pacific partners could make that trip, which was very unfortunate. But Apelli, who came to um, Tokyo and also to Sapporo, is a young nuclear campaigner in the Pacific. So we really made sure he was able to bring that issue into those spaces as well.
1: And there is an international
5: campaign now, isn't there, to stop that dumping into the ocean? Yes, that's definitely building, and it's very, very important. And I think the Pacific is going to be a very important voice in that because, of, of course, once again, They will be impacted. Um, We did talk about actually one of the things or one of the proposals that came out was this sort of building this alliance and actually sitting down, having a proper round table with people, representatives from each of the countries that would be most likely impacted if that water was released to be able to, you know, build more solidarity around this, to have a stronger voice.
1: What could they do with that water if it doesn't get dumped in the Pacific?
5: Well, talking to a few scientists, the best options would be to hold that water as long as they could, and and, and actually build a the the best world class permanent storage within Japan, like they have in Norway. Which still we don't know how long lasting that is, but it would be at least generations, and that's really what needs to happen. Um, and know that that's money, but you know if you're going to delve into <laughs> nuclear power. This is the results that happen. The other thing that was, I found really amazing was some of these community activists had actually done the journey to Chernobyl so they could learn from there as well. Community activists and some of the, you know, they, they, they weren't maybe activists prior to this event but they've become very fierce activists now. You know, they've really gone and done the research and really looked at what the impacts are going to be and what are the best ways forward. And so we have to really stand with them in pushing that. And that does include scientists, of course, and um, other sort of academics, as well as the people on the ground. So, yeah, my hope is that we can really keep building that. I think Australia also, like the movement here, will be a really great voice because we were the ones who – it uranium, but there was a very strong movement here. Yeah, so I think that we've just got to continue pushing that really pushing the Japanese government and putting pressure on the Japanese government. And, of course, that is happening inside, but they need our support outside as well. And we need our government
1: support as well.
5: Absolutely. So that was a question someone asked me as well, where does Australia stand, the Australian government? You know, and it's like, right, you know, we have to take responsibility as a country for this. So how do we support What happens there on the ground? You know, the best case scenario. It's a disaster. It's a man-made disaster. You know, and the government have created this museum already. And so they sort of admit certain faults, but it's a very glossed over picture of the situation. And it's a little bit, as you go through, like, everything's going to be fine. (laughs) You know, we're doing this and it's going to be all fine. Um, And that's problematic, that museum, because a lot of money's been put into it. They're building a train line to it. So, you know, it will become a tourist thing and people will think everything's okay. But really, it's not okay. Um, there's clearly still a lot of issues going on the ground. The fact that I would see uh, 12 years later, canvases of all well, these materials, these big, massive kind of barrels of radiated materials still sitting there, not knowing where to go with them, was pretty pretty shocking. And then, you know, they had these mid mid-level kind of dumps where they're burying that stuff. But it's mid-level, like what really is going to happen? There's opposition to those dumps, and they're in Fukushima. It's, it's huge, it's really huge, and it really shows you why nuclear power is just not the way to go. It's No answer because any accident that happens is long-lasting accident, and it's very hard to clean up. The decommissioning of that power plant is going to be 30 or more years.
1: Thank you so much for all that,
5: Natalie. No worries. Thank you so much, Sam. It's a pleasure to talk to you.
1: And Natalie Lowry is the Communications and Advocacy Coordinator of the Deep Sea Mining Campaign.
4: Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2023.
2: To donate, call the station 0394198377 or
4: donate online 3cr.org.au 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned, stay radical. Kafias are Palestinian scarves And they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas. And all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafiyas to an array of modern designs. All scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufias.org.au, that's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au, a 3CR supporter. Solidarity Salon, home of
5: Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir.
4: We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir, near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter.
1: I'm speaking now with Peter Murphy, who's the chair of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. May Day, you could say, is a relatively quiet day in Australia. but That's not the case in the Philippines. And to tell us about it and more about workers in the Philippines.
0: It's a public holiday in the Philippines and there's a, you know, a huge uh, effort to have mobilisations and the government holds events for allegedly for the workers as well so you know there is a lot of activity and focus.
1: And what was it like this year? Have you had any notification?
0: Well I've just seen that there was again a very big rally in Manila. Uh, This time was organised by all the trade union centres working together. Been a bit of a pattern in the last couple of years for especially because of Duterte's oppression for the unions to work together much more. But um, this is sort of a new level, I think, that Marcos seems to have continued or even intensified the repression uh, against all sectors that uh, criticise his policies, and that includes the trade unions. And um, there was a a sort of more formal structure called All uh, United Philippine Trade Unions, uh, which sponsored the the rally this year so i think it's um that that part is is the most remarkable to me i'm
1: sure you've been there on may day Peter. is that correct
0: many times in the past but uh, i myself am banned from traveling to the philippines since 2018 so i have you know that's already 5 years since i've been there which uh you know I find really disappointing, but um, yeah. I think I would have attended maybe 15 May Days in the Philippines, something like that.
1: What are your memories of the last one?
0: That uh, the, the march of the people from the post office uh, square, which is a, a monument to the 1896 revolution, to the Mendiola Palace, which is where the president lives, Malik and young, um, so the streets uh, it's a long it's a long march, uh, there's a lot of traffic, uh, a lot of uh, overpasses and so on, and uh, you will march through some very poor areas of the city, and of course, there's lots of police at the end when you get to the palace so um yeah the, what strikes me in this is a very, very determined people. The workers are very uh, angry at the at the government often. I think even the last time there's there's some kind of effigy of the uh, president and uh, it's burnt uh, in the street at the uh, palace end and um, you know you see people throwing stones at it, throwing bottles at it. The the anger and the pain of um, the people is, is really apparent.
1: And there's plenty of reasons for that anger isn't there?
0: Yes, yes. I mean that's I think uh you know it's an entirely different dimension to what Australians experience, so uh, you and know, the fact is that uh, some people have relatives who have been killed by the the government forces uh others have got relatives in jail for years on completely phony charges, and then there's you know all of those other problems that emerge when families have uh, people die because they couldn't get to hospital because they had no money. Or oh, they are really incapacitated because they can't afford medicine. You know, this is very big burdens hit hit families because of the very very poor employment conditions uh, that most people experience.
1: So is Marcos just following on the in the path of Duterte?
0: Yes, yes. I'm. For, I'm afraid it's an unequivocal yes to that question, Jan. Uh, so. Just two weeks ago, uh, the news came through that um, an organizer with the Call Center Trade Union Group was found uh, stabbed 15 to 20 times, uh, in, in uh, the capital city of Negros uh, Occidental. And um, you know, this this is really heart-wrenching again for everybody. Uh, so. In January, in January, there was an international labor organization mission went to the Philippines to confront the employers and the government about the numbers of uh, trade union leaders who have been killed and those arrested and the very widespread harassment of unionists. And uh, the government accepted all of the cases put to it. that They didn't disagree that it had happened at all. And they promised they would change their policies and so on. But uh, in fact... The killing of this this organiser his name was Alex Dolorosa um it just shows that it's 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 still going and he, even at the time the ILO was there some of the security officials who talked to them just blatantly you know said look trade unionists are just terrorists and we're going to have to go after them anyway so you know it's, it's really t- very depressing and uh and I think we all we all need to be really clear in our minds that um, the Marcos presidency is going to be as bad as any, as bad as his father's, and um, maybe worse than maybe worse than Duterte's. Duterte's was the worst. So, yeah, I think I think we all have to face up to that, and we're trying here from the Australian end to get the Australian government to face up to it as well.
1: Well, it must be terribly difficult for the people of the Philippines to actually face up to it
0: because it's in their face every day of the week. Yeah, well, it's like inescapable for them. Uh, so yeah, facing it is what's happening all the time. Whereas um, I think for people in the international community, you, you can sometimes, uh, or a lot of the time, people just prefer not to not to uh, mention it, not to acknowledge it's happening, pretend that somehow or other this can all keep on going. and. Uh, you know, Australia is, seems to be having deepening security ties with the Philippines, even, even as we speak. So um, there's, there's quite an important argument or debate to be had in Australia. And, and I think we'll see it at the international level that at the ILO, at the UN, the Philippines government will come under more intense pressure.
1: Is there a follow-up to the ILO mission?
0: There will be a report made to the International Labour Conference in June in Geneva. It's a formal part of this uh, process of the mission. So, you know, that, that there will be a report saying that in the, all of these cases were acknowledged to be true, that the government said it wouldn't have to change its policy, and then it will also, I think, say that they, in, in fact, haven't changed their policy and the uh, violations of workers' rights have continued. And then it will be up to the the actual conference itself to decide on uh, further action to take, which would be i expect uh, a sharper uh, criticism of the uh, Philippine government a call for the international community to reduce its uh, investments and other other forms of economic relations with the Philippines while this is going on. that's what I'm expecting to see
1: in you know, other is instances at other countries have the bodies taken notice of the ILO what they say and what they threaten
0: in general they do um but it's it's uh to me, a very timid sort of level of, of action it's the, high, you know, it's the highest level of trade union action you can have to go to the ILO um, and by the time things get there normally, they're fairly watered down and uh, because it's a tripartite uh, structure with governments and employers and unions all together there, you know, things, things get uh, compromised or sorted out in some kind of way, usually before it gets to a, a real uh, criticism. Uh, This did happen before in 2009 with the Philippines when the Arroyo government was also incredibly bloodthirsty and uh, many unionists were killed uh, during her presidency and um, and yet the ILO sort of fudged it at the end. So we do think it will be different this time and I think one of the broader things that happens is that because the the United Nations uh, has all these uh, so-called compacts, there's criteria in the World Bank and the IMF uh, for human rights tests for investments and so on, or loans, there will be an economic cost to the Philippines uh, when uh, the international body says yes, all of these violations of workers' rights have taken place and are continuing and the government is refusing to change. There will be a withdrawal of investment at a certain level, there will be a cost. It won't be a dramatic sort of talked about thing necessarily, but there will be this this type of thing happening. And uh, I think here in Australia, we, are, we are, would be considered a very important uh, country in the region to stand in the right place uh, over this issue. And uh, I do worry that the, uh, despite the rhetoric coming from our government now about human rights, that nothing much is happening and we, we will have to press them to shift their position.
1: Just to reiterate Peter how much is the Australian government investing and also Australian business investing in the Philippines?
0: Well the Australian government has uh, got a civil aid program of about 70 million dollars a year and we we don't get a clear maybe the budget will have a number uh, that uh, shows the military side of it but it's at least 40 to $50 million a year for programs to do with our Navy and um, Army and Air Force with the Philippine military. And then there's also about 170 Filipino military officers uh, at any one time training at uh, Australian Military Academies in Canberra and Victoria. So it's a significant commitment and it's, it's long standing, ongoing and, uh, if anything, expanding as part of this containment of China program that's, is clearly unfolding. Yeah. yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to, you know, dialogue with the government about this, whether it was the coalition or the Labor government. Um, they, they generally, you know, they want to talk about China. They don't want to talk about the Philippines or, you know, West Papua or Myanmar. But um, we have to make them talk about what's happening in the Philippines and what what role they're playing. So it's um, yeah, it's one it's a, sort of a, the tougher tougher end of the the campaign work, I think.
1: And Australian businesses in in particular, mining.
0: Uh, the, the business side, yeah, the business side is mainly mining. So here there is uh, a range of. Smaller Australian companies in, engage. Um, one of them is uh, a gold and copper mine in uh, Luzon at a place called Didipio. It's Oceana Gold. They clearly have very close connections to the palace in in Manila, and there's a lot of resistance from the community where they're working. And so, yeah, you get you get uh, what I hear is you know the em- embassy uh, in Manila is the Australian embassy is is always urging more. Australian mining investments in the Philippines and so on. It, it, so at the level of Oceana Gold, which are relatively minor size companies that's going on, and then we have to like BHP, it sort of subcontracts the mining. So it, it buys a lot of nickel from uh, mines in Mindanao, um, but it's on the sort of contract to local uh, companies. So BHP is, is a really significant player in, in the picture and you can see therefore the political influence that uh, they would be having about what Australia's policy ought to be with the Philippine government. And and that that influence is really status quo. Let's keep going the way it is.
1: I'd just like to say, Peter, that it must be a large amount of bravery for the workers in the Philippines to join a union and also for those who put their hand up to be a union leader.
0: Yes, I think... uh, uh yes, it's, it's, um, something again that, uh, Australian unionists just don't have to face. But, uh, those Australian uh, trade union activists who have been to the Philippines and meet these people are, re- are very much, uh, a, you know, a, the word impressed isn't quite right. They're astonished, uh, you know, and really admire the calibre of the people they meet. And it's, it's, um, You know, of course, I also meet Filipinos who say, well, yes, my father or my mother uh, were active in the trade union, so I decided, you know, that was too too much of a cost and I went off and did something else. But uh, even those people are, you know, very much admiring their efforts that uh, their parents made, say. The ones I've met, they have often had to not live at home, you know, like move from house to house because of the intensity of surveillance, you in, in a sense, even though their trade unions are completely legal and their members are, you know, in all sorts of companies, they're, they're being hunted as if they're criminals and um, their lives are in danger. And, and as, as I've related to you in different uh, interviews um, and in this case of Alex Dolorosa, just Sometimes the strike hits, you know, that um, these people, they're harassed so much. They get um, posters put up about them sometimes uh, saying that they're wanted, that they're terrorists. They they receive messages on their phone saying, I've got a bullet with your name written on it, things like that. Threats coming, threats coming so much, you can't really tell when when someone might really act on the threats. But that does happen too. you know, well, it happens even once is too often, but it happens a lot. So uh, I also know union leaders who are, or human rights leaders who are forced into exile you know, so they're living in Europe somewhere because they just cannot uh, survive in the Philippines as it is. So the reason why this happens is that uh, the wages and conditions of employment are so bad. Uh, people have to emigrate just to get a job or if they can they organize some kind of workers association or a trade union so that they can negotiate with their employer for some kind of, even get the minimum wage, and if not the minimum, you know, maybe they can do better and get a a sort of grade above the minimum wage. There is really no other way. A lot of uh, workers really want a union to exist, and uh, they're really willing to contribute to its efforts. So that's, The reason why, from outsiders' view, they look really heroic, because because they are being heroic. You know, it is a dangerous uh, atmosphere or environment for workers, and those people they elect as leaders uh, are often, you know, completely aware of the danger, and they realise that somebody's got to do this uh, for the future of their the whole country, and certainly for their families.
1: Well, finally, Peter, I'd imagine that the workers in the Philippines were on the minds of many of the workers who who, who took to the streets in, the, in Australia for May Day.
0: Uh, I think there was a, a speech in the rally in Sydney, uh, which was held on May 1, when the uh, construction sector and the maritime sector went on strike and held a march through the city. And there was a specific speaker who was a Filipino uh, woman from the United Workers Union who, who addressed what's happening in the region, especially the Philippines and also in Myanmar. And, uh, she got a good hearing from the, uh, rally. I carried the banner of the Philippines-Australia Union link in the May Day, uh, march in Wollongong on Saturday. Um, and there was quite a few people, many people took the, took a photo with it and, um, I had a few coming up saying yes I'm married to a Filipino I know what it's like there and you know keep up the good work uh, so it is an effort to uh, raise awareness of um, these conditions in our region and the Philippines I can assure you is the worst in the region in a region which is full of difficult governments it's the worst by a mile so we, we we just have to keep you know on our end keep on educating people about it keep keep it try to keep it in front of mind that this is something that must be confronted and fixed
1: thanks once again Peter
0: uh, thank you very much for talking to me Jan
1: and Peter Murphy is the chair of the international coalitions for human rights in the Philippines mm-hmm.
4: Hey 3CR listeners, a quick note from Radio Skid Row. At Radio Skid Row, we believe in a world where everyone's voice is heard. We believe in honest, diverse media and social justice. It's more important than ever to support truth, creative thinking and radical community. Your support keeps the lights on and helps us broadcast into a dignified future for all. With 40 years under our belt, we're ready for 40 more. To donate, go to crowdfunding.startsomegood.com and click the Skid Row 40 campaign.
1: Everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in.
3: For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org.
5: Food Not Bombs is a 3CI supporter.
4: I still remember my favourite teacher. They taught me to believe in myself. Some of our teachers were so inspiring. Why wouldn't you want to be like them? I'm three years into my degree, and I can already see it was the right decision for me.
0: Study to become one of 4,000 new teachers across Victoria with a career that makes a difference and changes lives. Are you ready? Visit vic.gov.au forward slash teach the future to get started. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne.
3: A 3CR supporter.
5: On May 20, new anti-protest laws will come into effect in Victoria targeting forest protectors.
0: Sign up to be part of a mass survey action to protect and restore forests and defend the right to protest. Surveying is the act of looking for threatened species in an area slated to be logged in order to trigger protections. All forest protectors, whether at protest camps or citizen scientists, are targeted with these new anti-democratic laws. To sign up, go to geco.org.au. Be a part of this epic survey action on Saturday the 20th of May so that we can protect and restore the critical forest ecosystems that we all depend on and defend the right to protest in the process.
5: Goongra Environment Centre is a 3CR supporter.
4: ACR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people
5: rather than profit.
1: Tony Kevin is Emeritus Fellow of the ANU, a former diplomat and foreign affairs advisor, a self-published author, outspoken supporter of Russia, and condemning of what he believes is the propaganda surrounding the war in Ukraine. Today we talk about that war, the prospects for ending it, and also what it means for the UN as the world moves away from US hegemony towards a stable multipolar system. Tony, first Russia. You first lived there in 1969 in the then Soviet Union. This was part of the Australian Embassy in Moscow. Was this your first posting?
3: It was my first posting the year after I joined Foreign Affairs in 68, I was there for two years with my young wife and we had two babies while we were there. After that, we returned to Canberra and Just went on with a normal foreign affairs career until 1998.
1: What lasting impressions have you remained with from those two years?
3: Well, I wrote a book, first recent visit to Russia in 2016, and the first third of the book is really devoted to my memories of those early years. In a word or two, it was a very different world from the West, totally different with its own sort of cultural values, its own economic system. There was intense um, suspicion of the West, which was mutual. To go to Russia in those days really felt you going into a different world. It's not like that now, of course. But um, the Soviet system, particularly after the, the very harsh years of Stalin and the terrible privations and losses of World War II, had made the whole place very resolute, very determined, very Spartan. Russia was Sparta and the West was Athens and anyone with a bit of classical reading will, will know what I mean by that.
1: And how did you get on with that system?
3: Well I was under very strong constraint by my own system, brainwashed into us all from long before we went that we were going into a hostile world and we should be terribly careful of our personal security, terribly careful not to be compromised by people who would be trying to compromise us and use us. So there was a kind of a paranoia which was built into my experience there. It was the same on the other side. I mean, we were made to live in diplomatic compounds which were fenced off to a very uh, high level, two two and a half metres. We had guards at the gate noting our movements coming in and out, anybody who came to visit us. We kind of operated as a bit of a people living in a hostile camp. On the other hand, physical security was 100% because we were so closely monitored. There was, and indeed everybody else was, it was a police state then still. There was no real possibility of any serious crime apart from the odd drunk in the street accosting you was the worst thing that could possibly happen. We had a very good cultural life, beautiful music, privileged access tickets to the best concerts and operas and ballets. Uh, Wonderful picnics and trips to the countryside in summer and winter because the countryside around Moscow then was all very closely held by the state, pretty accessible to walkers and skiers. And so we could just basically park a car not too far outside Moscow, uh, walk for miles, ski for miles. It was wonderful.
1: Were you able to make friends there?
3: No. It was discouraged on both sides from making friends. The assumption was that if someone tried to make you friend, they were trying to subvert you. The only time we could have any real physical contact with Russians was in the markets when you could sort of have small talk with the market stallholders selling fruit and vegetables and so on, or traveling on trains. People on trains sort of forgot about the inhibitions and sitting in a railway carriage with someone you'd... If you smiled and if you were prepared to strike up a conversation, they were too. But everybody knew that these friendships were temporary and um, they didn't extend beyond the the journey.
1: Well, 20 years later, the Soviet Union was collapsing. What were your feelings at that time?
3: I was still in the Western narrative mindset. It was still that, um, you know, this is a bad system. It's good to see it disappearing. And I was optimistic about the future. It seemed that Gorbachev was um, a man who was bringing fresh ideas to a a moribund political system. He clearly wanted to be friends with the West. He was trying very hard to to send a message to the West of, you know, we want to end the Cold War and move into a new leaf of Russia becoming part of Europe again. So it was a very optimistic time, really, from 85 to 91. It didn't really start going bad, and Helen did not. I noticed it going bad in the 10 years that followed, although already the, the warning signs were there in the, in the late Gorbachev years. The Soviet Union collapsed in 91. The economy went through incredible depression, and uh, there was a huge amount of theft from the public purse in the form of privatization. Massive corruption developed almost overnight. Although the seeds of it had always been there, it certainly flourished. You could say the more Western economic advisors and investors came into Russia, the more corruption thrived because their money provided the the lubricant of corruption. The people, the ordinary people, went through intense grief and disruption of their lives and in many cases, real economic hardship and this continued, you know, for the whole ten years, and they've been referred to by the Russians as the new time of troubles. Back to the last time of troubles in the seventeenth century, when there was a, you know, massive invasions of Russia with massive disruption. But in this new time of troubles, there, there seemed to be no salvation. Yeltsin was a drunk; he was easily influenced. He was a, a rather dim man politically, but he he did have some good native instincts and. I think the best decision he ever made was to anoint Vladimir Putin as his successor. And Putin became president with Yeltsin's blessing at the end of 2000. That was the beginning of Russia's revival, because Putin, a former KGB man and then who'd head, headed the KGB in Germany uh, during the, sort of the late years of communism, He could see what was happening to his country. He was an intense patriot. And he was determined to try and take the reins, and as he put it, raised Russia off its knees. Because by that time, Russia was completely demoralized. Among the men, there was a huge alcoholism problem. Men were drinking themselves to death, uh, dying at an early age, increasing impotence and so on. The women were prostituting themselves to foreigners, trying desperately to leave the country start repressed somewhere else in the world. It was really on its last legs in 2000. Much of the wealth had been taken out of the country by Russian oligarchs who were busy spending it in, in the Mediterranean, in, in, in the French Riviera, in London buying buying huge properties in London and so on. So it, it was exploited and demoralised the country. Putin took quite a few years to take the reins again and I I salute his incredible political competence and um, patience in taking control of the situation. His message to the oligarchs was, you either become patriotic again and put Russia first, or there's no place for you here, get out. So the oligarchs split fairly rapidly into two groups. Those who sort of left and then tried to disrupt Russia from afar using their money and those who stayed and, and decided to commit themselves to the country and to the, to the government. And by around 2007, it was pretty clear that, that he was taking control effectively, and he was beginning to improve the living standards of the people. The more he succeeded, the more that the West hated him. And let me talk about this for a minute, because it's very crucial to my overall perspective on Russia. There is a, an element in America that has always seen Russia as a deadly rival. And this is an inheritance from Britain because, as it were, the strategic Anglo-Saxon strategic mantle passed from London to Washington at some stage in the... I you could argue about when it happened exactly, but certainly by the time I was in Russia, it was well and surely established that America was the centre of the, as it were, the Anglo-American, English-speaking alliance. And there was a whole body of strategic thought started by a guy called Sir Halford Mackinder, geopolitical historian, that there's a natural rivalry between the Eurasian heartland and the uh, Atlantic Maritime world. This is a famous theory that has influenced people on both sides uh, in a huge and powerful way. The view in America in 1991 was, right, now we've dealt with the Soviet Union, it's gone, now we have to deal with what's left. We want to basically cut Russia down to size, turn it into hopefully two or three different smaller states that can never threaten America again. So there was this element of strategic thinking in Washington from the very beginning. It wasn't really affected by the end of communism because it wasn't about communism. It was about the rivalry of Russia to America, which this faction in America thought of as, a, as almost a sort of an immutable biblical law that could, could never be changed. That, It was a bit like Roman Carthage. I often make that comparison. Cato got up in the Roman Senate every year and said, Carthage must be destroyed. Carthage must be destroyed. He was expressing a, a sort of an ideological, firmly held belief that would not be shaken by any diplomacy or any detente or anything else. And that's what it was like for these people. Who were they? Where did their power come from? I want to say something quickly on this because, once again, it's, it's vital to understanding the present situation. They were a lot of it was the influence of Jewish immigrants from the, the Russian world, from the Russian imperial world, who left Russia with a with a very bruised psychology and a feeling that they'd been basically kicked out of their homeland by anti-Semitic uh, Russian imperial power, and they had this hatred of Russia from that. And of course, that stream has been replenished by all the emigrations ever since. Then there was the Eastern European element. And once again, you have a very strong hatred of Russia from people like Poles, uh, the various Baltic countries, some of the Ukrainians who had adopted a Ukrainian nationalist position against Russia. They, they all had good reason to hate Russia too, and they're very powerful politically in America, and particularly in you know certain electorates. Finally, there are the... I suppose, the, the American strategic ideologues, the people who continue to construct a, a theology of, of Russian enmity uh, based on the, the thoughts of ideas that I've outlined before. Now, when you put these three elements together, you've got a very powerful coalition. Well, the expansion of NATO is very much the expression of what I've just been talking about. When Gorbachev ended the Cold War with first Reagan and then George H.W. Bush... They gave Gorbachev repeated understandings that if Gorbachev allowed East Germany to go to West Germany, become part of the West, NATO would not advance an inch further into Eastern Europe, that Russia could abandon the, the Warsaw Pact, under which it had military control of East Germany and all of what was then Eastern Europe, Warsaw Pact countries, but the West would not move into the power vacuum. The West would leave those countries to, as it were, determine their own future. And Gorbachev expressed what he called the Sinatra Doctrine, uh, which was a reference to the song um, by Frank Sinatra. The the expression was that everybody can basically go their own way. No sooner had that undertaking been signed than under the next president, Clinton, in the mid-90s, it was broken. That undertaking was verbal. It was never put in writing because... Both sides didn't want to have the political embarrassment of signing off on it. Reagan and Bush didn't want to tell their East European voters, East European and Jewish background voters, hey, we've agreed basically not to go into the East European countries. And Gorbachev didn't want to tell the Russians, hey, I've just given away East Germany. So for both reasons, it was not in writing. But historians of any repute are absolutely united in the view that uh, it was a, a firm agreement. Now, Clinton in the mid-90s, first he took uh, the three most easy ones, which were Czechoslovakia as it was then, uh, one country, uh, Hungary and um, I think it was Romania. And then over the next decades, more and more, NATO just kept biting off more and more of them. It took the the three Baltic states, it took Bulgaria I haven't got the exact sequence of progressively in front of me now but by 2000 all of the European countries were were NATO members except the Finland and Sweden which were still neutral, Ukraine which was still contested and Georgia, the the Christian Orthodox country way over on the eastern side of the Black Sea. Now the American imperialists, and I'll call them that from now on, their, their appetite was still unsatisfied. They wanted Sweden and Finland They wanted Ukraine and Georgia. They wanted to have control of the Black Sea. Uh, They wanted to present Russia with a united sort of anti-Russian front right hard on the Russian borders, which were 600 kilometres from Moscow, both to the west and to the south. And so that was the situation. And, I mean, Russia just looked on in horror over the years at this increasing encirclement of it, the increasing encroachment on its backyard, here again, an analogy helps us to understand. We're talking about a Chinese or a Russian move into Canada and Mexico. Not Canada or Mexico, Canada and Mexico. But let's suppose we have Chinese and Russian forces in Canada and Mexico increasingly pulling the strings of those governments, uh, driving them into in anti American directions, making America feel increasingly encircled and vulnerable. How would America have reacted to that? Of course, they would have reacted very very fiercely and very harshly. They would they would not have let it happen. Why did Putin let it go on for so long? That's going to be the question that future historians ask. And a lot of people within Russia were asking the same question. But Putin was determined to try to make this thing work. And for years and years he kept trying for detente. He kept trying to make the West Sea. You're pushing on our red lines here. You're You're putting us in an intolerable situation. Please stand back. Please let us get back to, well, he didn't say get back to Gorbachev's vision, but he certainly implied get back to Gorbachev's vision of a united Europe from the Atlantic to the Urals. You know, let's hold on to our idea of mutual respect and European civilization and effective diplomacy. He tried very, very hard. He tried desperately hard. But because of American intransigence and provocation, he failed.
1: Can you explain what you meant by the contest over
3: Ukraine? Yes, Ukraine is at the heart of all this. And if anyone's talking about world peace or restoring some sort of stability in the world, you've got to read some Ukrainian history. You've got to get yourself across the special nature of that country. And there's a wonderful book by um, Sakwa, Richard Sakwa, a British historian. And he wrote a book about Ukrainian history called Crisis on the Borderlands, which I recommend thoroughly to anybody. Ukraine has always been on the borderlands. Ukraino means at the borders. And it's always been a sort of in the middle of a tug of war between Russian influence, um, Austro-Hungarian influence, Polish influence, German influence. And Ukraine has been at the sort of a scene of intensely bloody wars for centuries. And the people of Ukraine have emerged as a multicultural country with strong elements that were uh, Russian-speaking, Russian-culturally affiliated, very much part of Russia, and also a large element of people who were more uh, Western-influenced, Catholicism-influenced, Polish-influenced, Austro-Hungarian-influenced. And they sort of all merged in this rather complicated ethnic jigsaw of Ukraine and you couldn't really draw a line down Ukraine and say which half of it was more Russian and which half of it was more Western. It was all kind of mixed up. But there was a tendency to be more Russian in the East and a tendency to be more pro-Western in the West. Now, all of this was dealt with under the Tsars and dealt with under the uh, the Soviets with a sort of a gentle hand, really. Some people will be jumping up in their chairs and screaming when they hear I say that, but I be- believe it was a gentle hand. They wanted to try and make Ukrainians feel a valued and welcome part of the Russian world. A great many of the political leadership of the, of, of the Russian state, both under the Tsars and the Soviets, was given to Ukrainians. They were a very important part of the empire and of the Soviet Union, both economically and industrially and, and culturally. But there was always this element that pined for Ukrainian independence, And I'll give you another analogy here. Ireland and and Britain. I mean, the British tried to basically make Ireland part of Britain, make the Irish feel that they were entirely part of the British world. There was always this angry, nationalistic, Irish-speaking faction in Ireland that said, no, we don't want to be any part of you. We just want you gone from this island. And it's that irredentism, that anger, that hatred, that has to be understood. There was an element of Ukrainians that had always hated Russians, and they were waiting for their opportunity to, as it were, seize their, the, the flag. They hated everybody else too, funnily enough. They hated Austro-Hungarians, they, they hated Poles, they hated their own Jews. So they basically wanted to get rid of all these, or incorporate all of these hostile elements and reclaim their country for, for themselves. And these people got their chance when the Soviet Union broke up, because from, from 1991 onwards, they were free to, as it were, extend their cultural influence within Ukraine. They set up their own so-called universities. They tried to gradually take control of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which was led from Moscow at that time. They tried to extend respect for the Ukrainian language. The language had never been forbidden under the Russian Russian world. It was falling out of disuse in the way that Gaelic was falling out of disuse in, in Ireland and Scotland. Economic imperatives were driving people towards becoming Russian speaking and Russian thinking. But after 1991 there was the opportunity to start to revive this sort of very rosy tinted view of Ukrainian history that put precedence on the Ukrainian language and culture. The Russian side of things was just gradually sort of pushed to the side. And you started having these torchlight parades in major Ukrainian cities when when people marched through the streets with torchlights in a very Nazi fashion, celebrating uh, one of their heroes, political heroes, Stepan Bandera, who was distinguished in World War II by collaborating with the Nazis and making his followers in Ukraine very much part of the anti-Semitic um, holocaust that took place. There were there were more Ukrainian banderists at Babi Yar talking that the Nazis kill, murder thousands of Ukrainian Jews than there were German Nazis. That tells you something. Anyway, all of this would have been manageable, I think, were it not for American interference. Uh, this is where I come back to what I was saying earlier. There was this strong element that thought, hey, we could use Ukraine with our money, subvert Ukraine, achieve a regime change towards a." Uh, a definitely anti-Russian regime and let's do this. And at the level of this strategic, you might call it war party in Washington, that was a bipartisan consensus. So um, they just went on gathering strength. And The the tragedy is that Putin didn't want to recognize the danger here. He could see the danger, but he thought, oh, look, the Ukrainians are our brothers. So many of them are Russian-speaking and Russian-culturated. Without help, they will control this. We we don't have to take any strong measures. Ukraine's an independent country, part of the post-Soviet world, and uh, we can just basically hands off.
1: You are listening to 3CR, Tuesday Home Time, an interview with Tony Kevin, Emeritus Fellow of the ANU, a former diplomat and foreign affairs advisor, and a person who condemns what he believes is the propaganda surrounding the war in Ukraine, bringing us up to 2014.
3: By 2013, after one or two failed attempts earlier to achieve regime change in in, in Ukraine, the Americans tried once or twice, but they didn't quite have the strength at that stage to do it. But in 2013, the political sort of constellations came together, that there was a very Strong debate going on in Ukraine about whether it should join the EU or not. And the president at the time, Yanukovych, who was essentially pro-Russian, said, no, no, we're not ready for this. We should continue to try and straddle both worlds, the European world and the Russian world. A permanent demonstration against him began in the main square of Kiev, Maidan Square, very much on the model of solidarity in Poland, which, which was sort of the the blueprint for these successful people's revolutions against communism. Uh, all sorts of people went and sat in the square, from liberal democrats to Ukrainian banderists or Ukrainian Nazis. They all got together and sat in the square and said, we want this government gone and we want to join the EU full stop. And it became a permanent demonstration. It became increasingly tense and, and hair-trigger violence was basically uh, always a threat went on for two or three months and finally the violence did come and we know now that it was provoked by Ukrainian nationalists and even Georgian uh, nationalist snipers who came in and provoked shooting between the police and the crowds they actually did it by shooting at policemen from within the, the crowds and killing several, the police of course retaliated it became a bloodbath And two days later, the president fled and a new government was installed, which was not democratically elected. It was simply the people who were seizing power. And America was behind this, right up to the hilt. And immediately the new government passed very significant punitive laws, passed laws favoring the Ukrainian language, requiring all official business to be conducted in Ukrainian including birth, deaths, marriages, and so on. They made entry to the public service, conditional on the Ukrainian affinity and knowledge. So they were basically sending a message right from the beginning, anyone who had any Russian traces will be a second-class citizens here from now on. And that was with the full blessing of, of Washington and the West. Immediately, uh, Crimea retaliated. They were desperately afraid because they were a, a Russian peninsula, basically, that had been pushed into Ukraine by Khrushchev very foolishly some 50 years earlier when they were all part of the Soviet Union and he thought, oh, we're going to be brothers forever. They were desperately frightened that their whole way of life and identity was going to be destroyed by the Ukrainians. As they'd had ample evidence of already because in all those years from uh, 1991 to, to 2013 and we're talking about 22 years, Crimea had been part of Ukraine, and the government of Crimea by Ukraine had not, been, had not been kind. They had basically disdained the Russian speakers there. They'd tried to gradually increase their influence in the whole peninsula. They had given the Crimean Russians very good reasons to be frightened of what might now happen under these new laws. So there was a bloodless, if you like, regime change in Crimea, It was assisted by the Russian sailors and soldiers from the big Russian naval base there, Sevastopol, and the Ukrainians were basically pushed off the peninsula. And Crimea then very quickly was um, their referendum, which resulted in an overwhelming choice to overwhelming in the 90% to rejoin Russia. That was accepted by Russia. The frontier between Crimea and Ukraine became a, a militarized, rather tense frontier, Ukraine cut off water supply to the Crimean Peninsula uh, in an effort to basically, you know, drive them out. And Crimea, over the next eight years, prepared for a future as as part of Russia. And they built this wonderful bridge called the Kerch Bridge across the Azov Sea, so that they had a a land link uh, between Crimea and what you might call mainland Russia. And the border with uh, Ukraine, It was still open for things like tourism and family reunion, but it was a very tense and closely policed border. So for the next eight years, we're looking at a situation where lots of things were happening. America was steadily increasing its military aid to Ukraine and steadily increasing the range and capacity of the weapons it was supplying to Ukraine to make it more and more possible for Ukraine to, as it were, move forward. And meanwhile, some very important things had happened in 2014. Firstly, the resistance from the Russian-speaking eastern Ukraine, the Donbas area of Ukraine, had broken out into open political rebellion, really. And the people of Donetsk and Lugansk had set up their own militias and said, "We, you know, we don't accept these new laws, which are making us into second-class citizens. They appealed to Moscow, to Putin, to be treated in the same way Crimea had been treated by Russia, to be allowed into Russia. And Putin said, no, no, you're part of Ukraine. You have to make your future within Ukraine and you have to try and make the old multiculturalism in Ukraine work again. So he, he basically made the Ukrainian Donbass republics, Donetsk and Lugansk, fight alone for eight years, although there was a lot of unofficial Russian support a lot of unofficial Russian military support. There was a kind of equilibrium, a military equilibrium, which was sustained for for those eight years. It came at a very heavy price for the people of Donbass. There were 14,000 people killed on both sides, mostly on the the Donbass side, and a great many of them were civilians, women and children, old people, who were basically killed in, you know, pretty much random artillery bombings of, of towns and villages. Uh, 100,000 refugees were were created, people who lost their homes in the bombings. This is a bit of the history which hasn't been told in the West, deliberately so, but um, there were huge human rights violations against the people there. The other major thing that happened in 2014, just three months after the Maidan Square Revolution or or regime change, was an exemplary massacre of pro-Russian people in Odessa. Odessa is very much a multicultural city, very strongly Jewish, very strongly um, Greek and Romanian and so on. And and the Russians in Odessa are very Russian. It's it's as Russian a city as, as Moscow or St. Petersburg. Hardly any ethnic Ukrainians were there. They were provoked by Ukrainian nationalist thugs who were bust into the city in large numbers there were rival street demonstrations. The, the Bandarists had the numbers and they basically manhandled and pushed the pro-Russian demonstrators, who were unarmed, of course, into a, a major symbolic building, the, the, the Trades Union building of Odessa, which was a big four-story building. They essentially sort of herded them in there, locked them in, didn't, didn't lock them in, but surrounded them and made it impossible for them to leave and proceeded to set fire to the building. The police were there and and looked on. They didn't try to intervene. The people who tried to come out were killed, and and people who jumped from the upper stories from the fire obviously fell and were injured or died. Forty-five people were, were murdered on that day. There have been no arrests. There has been no judicial process, although everybody knows who the ringleaders were, who the people who did it were. It was basically an act of deterrence to send a message to the rest of Ukraine, this is how you Ukrainian pro-Russians can expect to be treated if you dare to resist us by force. It's something that's never been forgotten uh, among the the Russian-speaking Ukrainians. They were deterred, they were were intimidated into obedience to a state that many of them secretly fear and detest. Through the the decade from uh, 2014 to 20. 21 tension gradually increased, hostility gradually increased. Putin, through all these years, was still trying to to achieve a political resolution through the Minsk Accords, the Minsk Process, of negotiation with Western powers, primarily Germany and France, to say, look, please take this regime in Kiev in, in hand, bring it under your control. If they want to be part of Europe, fine, but you know, please make them behave like Europeans. Please make them respect human rights in in Ukraine, and and, and we can talk on that basis. He thought that was a genuine negotiation, but we know now that the whole thing was a fraud on the part of the West. They were basically buying time for the Ukrainians to rearm the country and indoctrinate the country more thoroughly against Russia. So between 2014 and 2022, something very dark happened in Ukraine a basically, you know, problematic country but still with a lot of decent elements, was turned into an anti-Russian, garrison, fascist state. So that by 2022, the authorities in Kiev thought that they had enough control over the country and they they had America behind them, they had the West behind them, and they had the military power behind them, that they could take out Donetsk and Lugansk, which at that time were pretty small enclaves, only occupying one-third of the territory of the former Donetsk and Lugansk provinces, the Ukrainians had fortified with incredibly strong concrete underground fortifications, a sort of ring of concrete and steel just to the west of Donetsk, the major city. They thought, well, you know, we're secure now, and we can basically just go in and take them out. And that was all coming to a head in February 2022. Earlier than that, late in 2021, Putin, his government, had basically issued a last-ditch appeal to the West, saying, hey, listen, we have finally reached crisis point here, We zero moment here. We must get together and organize a new European security system. You must respect our need for security, that there has to be a demilitarization of the countries to our West. Of course, they're independent countries, but they cannot be part of NATO. You cannot keep on bringing up forces that could be nuclear forces to our borders. This has to end now. And it was a very strong statement of principles, almost an ultimatum. And the Biden government simply laughed and sneered at it. They said, you know, you're having delusions. Yeah, there's a little bit of this we can possibly talk about, but most of it's completely unacceptable. The countries of Eastern Europe have made their sovereign decisions to be with NATO. They have a right to do this. You're just another country. Get back in your box. We have nothing to talk to you about. So there was a complete refusal to treat Russia with any respect or any seriousness. And then in February, it became clear to Russian intelligence that the invasion of Donbass and Lugansk, the long awaited invasion was being prepared. That this was going to result in terrible hardship for the people of those depleted or, you know, shrunken provinces. They were going basically to either be killed or pushed over the border into Russia or basically turned into slaves. And it was quite clear by this time that the Ukrainian regime did think of them as slaves. They called them orcs. If you know you Lord of the Rings, you know how human beings regarded orcs. There was so much hatred there, so much hatred and so much fear. So the people of Lugansk and Donetsk, they could see from the way the artillery shellings were, were mounting exponentially to soften up the area in preparation for an in- invasion. They made the last appeal to Russia. Putin still had one arrow in his, in his um, quiver. He said, right, let's accept your independence from Ukraine and we will sign a mutual security pact that we will protect you from any aggression. That was all done within a matter of days. When that happened, I, I raised a sigh of relief, actually, because I thought, well, finally, America and Kiev will see sense. They'll accept that, as in Crimea, there's now two independent pro-Russian states here, which will eventually become part of Russia, that was clear. They're under a mutual security pact with Russia, so that will be the end of the aggression. And meanwhile, Russia had obviously done its contingency planning and had put 120,000 battle-ready uh, troops along the northern border of Ukraine as a deterrent. Look, if you people do anything crazy against Donbas, we will then come down towards Kiev and towards Kharkov to... A central, major northern city from ukraine and so we are deterring you from craziness in in donbass by, by this deterrent measure and you can see how far the madness had spread in ukraine by this time because the ukrainians ignored that they just went on mounting up their showings preparing for the invasion talking to towards russia they just basically shrugged and said do your worst and so in the end putin realized that he had no alternative And on the 24th of February, after massive provocations from Ukraine, eight years of provocations, he invaded Ukraine from the south, from Crimea, from the east, from the Rostov area, and from the north. The war began on the 24th of February last year, and it was immediately denounced by the West as a completely, quote, unprovoked, unquote, invasion. But I... Stand by my professional judgment as a former Australian diplomat of 30 years standing to say that the invasion was completely unnecessary. Just a modicum of diplomacy on the Western side would have prevented it many times in the previous eight years. It was an utterly provoked invasion. And it was an invasion that had to happen then because Putin now finally realized that the situation that the West had created for him from Ukraine was a spear driven at Russia's heart and the longer he let this go on the more it would become a fatal threat to Russia itself because if he'd let Ukraine take Lugansk and Donetsk it would have not only been a massive human rights violation with misery and genocide really for the Ukrainian Russian-speaking people in those areas who had been fighting for eight years to defend themselves. A war that, as I've said, we have pretended to ignore in the West. But he knew that if he let that happen, his prestige as president of Russia would be fatally damaged. He would be removed and he would be replaced by a, a less experienced, less wise, more nationalist regime in Russia. And the consequences for world peace and for the onset of a third world war, a nuclear war, would be vastly enhanced. So he had to make war to save the peace, if you like, and give himself a chance to go on managing Russia with his capable hands.
1: With all that you've said and all that's gone on since that dawn when Russia moved, what are the prospects for an ending to this war and what do you believe that ending would look like?
3: Well, here I'm going to tax the um, patience of many of your listeners very greatly, because most people don't realize to what extent we are prisoners of a a narrative that's been sedulously and methodically drummed into us over many, many years, perhaps decades, that, you know, Russia is an expansionist evil country, that Putin is a dictator, that um, Russians are just dying to be liberated from this evil dictator, and so on and so forth. And because we're prisoners of this narrative, we're also prisoners of the narrative that Kiev is a decent regime, that um, these are essentially Democrats. They might have made a few mistakes. They might have done a few wrong things. But they're essentially a, a decent little country trying to be European, uh, being bullied by the big Russian neighbor. And essentially, we have to stand by them. As you know, from what I've already said, I, I don't believe that any of those propositions are true. I think the regime in Kiev is deeply evil. It's a Ukrainian version of Nazism. It has no love or care for its own people. If you want a metaphor, if you want models, just look at Adolf Hitler in the, the last years of World War II. He didn't get a damn for the fate of the German people. He basically took the view, well, if they... If they haven't won, they deserve to die. We'll all go down to Gotchadamberung together. And, and in the end, he shot himself when the Russian army was in, was in Berlin. That same fate awaits the regime in Kiev. Because I think in Russia now, people have really decided, look, there's no way to deal diplomatically with these people. They've, they've just passed beyond all understanding. Their hatred of us is pathological. They're trying to destroy the the orthodox church in ukraine they're they trying to destroy our culture they're turning children against their parents they're arresting old people who go to memorials to lay flowers to their dead grandparents who fought against Nazism. there is no limit to the hatred and the loathing that russians can now see in the ukrainian regime uh, on the military level and, and this is another big secret that's been kept from most of us although veil of deceit and disinformation is gradually lifting now at last. Ukraine's already lost the war. It lost it months ago. It's been a steady retreat and retrenchment of Ukrainian military threat to Russia ever since roughly September last year. And there isn't time to go into all the detail of the war, but the people I respect, analysts like Scott Ritter and Douglas McGregor, the two Alex, Alexander McCordist and Alex christopher the two people who run the Duran programs, on YouTube. There's an enormous amount of material which which everybody has access to if they're prepared to ignore the the warnings. Oh, this may be a Russian-friendly site. Think twice before you read it, which is straight out of 1984, by the way. I'm convinced that the so-called Ukrainian offensive is not going to happen, or if it does happen, it's going to be a very weak, symbolic affair, which is basically just going to take more Ukrainian lives needlessly. The Ukrainians have already, have already lost 200,000 and 300,000 men killed, about 200,000 permanently wounded, incapacitated. Millions have emigrated from Ukraine. It's, it's, it's a hollow shell of the country now. Once that offensive either doesn't happen or happens and is repulsed, they're the only two possibilities I can see. The Russian offensive will then move forward, and it's only a question of time whether they get as far as Kiev before there is a regime change in Kiev I can't predict the future in that detail but I can predict that by this time next year there won't be an anti-russian regime in Kiev and uh, Ukraine may be a divided country there may be a some sort of a rump Western Ukrainian state but it will be defanged it won't pose a strategic threat to Russia and the rest of Ukraine, the industrial and resource-rich part of Ukraine, the east and the south, can begin to rebuild. And the rebuilding will be a huge task, but Ukraine will then be back in the Russian world, with the help of the major changes that are taking place in the global economic system, with the increasing power of China and India and Iran and the BRICS countries, the Southeast Asian countries, The whole economic multipolar world that's being built outside the sort of the rump of the U.S. and the Atlantic alliance, to which unfortunately Australia still belongs, that is how the world's going to look. So we're in the middle of a huge historical transition, and Ukraine is is, is at the heart of it. And, of course, it it didn't have to happen this way. History's always full of alternatives. But the world is on this path now, and there's, there's no getting off it.
1: I've been speaking with Tony Kevin, Emeritus Fellow of the ANU, a former diplomat and foreign affairs advisor. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthew.3cr.org.au.